HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Greetings from Cheeselandia where cheese lovers, cheese makers, cheese nibblers, and cheese curious are all welcome. Find the really good stuff, meet the makers, and connect with fellow travelers on the cheese way of life. Visit wisconsincheese.com to learn more and sign up. Hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's June 14th, 2022. It's Flag Day, and what's more American than hard cider, right? I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. Um, And yes, we'll be talking about hard cider. So let's go around the room and introduce our esteemed guests. Each one of these gentlemen are are well-known in the world of hard cider, and each have totally different approaches to everything and I'm really honored that they were able to join in. And it seems like this month we're dedicating to uh, to hard cider. So let's go around the room. So I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. Uh, Jim? I'm James Aspel, and I'm an importer of Spanish cider. All right. Peter? I'm Peter Mitchell. I uh, The uh, the American Peter Mitchell, not the Brit, which you was much better cider maker than I. I own Headwater <laughs> Cider up here in Holly, Mass. <laughs> Massachusetts. And Ron? Uh, I'm the owner and cider maker at Spoke and Spy Cider in Middletown, Connecticut, and I'm the current president of the Cider Institute of North America. All right. So um, we, we all share a few things in common. W- one of them is that last year we were all at Cider Feast New England, uh, north of Boston, which is coming up next week. And it was great getting everyone together. Uh, Ron, you were a big part of the introductions and, 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 and bringing so many of, of the cider folk uh, into that event. Um, how are you doing? How's everything going? And um, yeah, let's let's check in with you. Up here, everything's going really well. Our cidery, you know, we're still making tons of cider. I've actually closed our tasting room to focus on wholesale, getting kegs to uh, accounts. 
And um, we're trying to move down the road and open up a bigger, better cidery, and hopefully that happens sometime soon. That's great. And you're in, you're in Middletown, Connecticut, right? Yep. Yeah, it's yeah. right in the right in the middle. That's great. And then P- Peter, um, yeah, I met you last year also at Cider Feast, and you yeah. came out, out out east. I was up north of Boston. Um, tell me a little bit about about your operations at Headwater and what you're working on right now. Well, I just just got off the tractor with enough time to hop in the shower today. Um, we got uh, 2,000 trees on 20 acres. Our motto is grow what you press, press what you grow. Uh, we make pretty much exclusively dry ciders. Um, we do them in five-gallon kegs because I don't want to lift a bigger keg. And uh, we do them in 750s and some uh, 12-ounce bottles as well. Um, and what else can I say? Oh, oh, James, James Aswell, you should be happy with this. I just scored 150 new trees. Uh, and wow. they include Sangre de Toro and Coloradana. Oh. So oh, cool. those will be fun. Col- those are some Coloradana, good Spanish cider yeah. apples. Awesome. That's great to hear. And and I'll say why when I come on. And now you're on, Jim. Oh, okay. Tell us a little about you. I, I met you. I know you lived in Rhode yeah. Island and you were an architect. but I know your brother. My brother, Chris Carboni. Yeah, yeah, I do, man. I do. He's a local celebrity there in Rhode Island. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I've been importing for 10 years. Can talk to that. But also, uh, after four years uh, in the Pacific Northwest, sort of driving sales, uh, my wife and I have moved back to Western Mass, also the Connecticut River Valley. And uh, we're uh, starting an orchard. Now, our recent planting is 40 trees, not, what'd you say, Peter, 2,000? This, yeah, this is yep, two grand. Yeah. And 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 so we're planting uh we're planting uh uh seedling rootstock for uh standard sized trees, which we're gonna keep small by pruning, but they're going to be relatively big and they're gonna be slow. Um and uh, our goal is really to have, and why I'm so glad to hear Peter's got some Spanish, our, our goal is to have a kind of demonstration Spanish orchard, both tree type and spacing, so that people who can't go over to Spain, which y'all should anyway, can sort of get a sense of what a Spanish orchard is. And of course, when we graft, we're going to graft all Spanish varietals. So it's it's great to hear Peter's out there ahead of me and, you know, find out what works before I before i jump in yeah well if i if i can grow them we'll see that it's always the trick it's like yeah you have the nice variety but can you produce it is it going to work in the in this in this area yeah for sure for sure yeah so uh guys peter i don't know if uh, all of our listeners probably don't know who peter mitchell is and you know i'd say many of our listeners are probably craft beverage enthusiasts who are would like to learn more and i think what i'm most interested in is just the differences between the three of you um, before we talk about similarities. So like how would each of you describe what good cider is, but in the, in the context of what you're growing or making or selling, uh, I want to start with Ron. Cause Ron, you, you, you're quite a legend. Uh, you're involved with the cider Institute of North America and many things before you were even making cider. Uh, the ciders I like, I really like dry still ciders with a lot of complexity. But um, as a cider maker, I know that consumers love uh, sweeter, fruitier. So, I mean, I make a lot of that, but I drink a lot of uh, 
you know, dry, some sparkling. And then are, are there any countries that inspire you? I mean, I mean, honestly, like we're going into cider feast and there's a lot of people that like cider. Some people drink cider because it's gluten-free option. Um, I, and I think in most places I go when, when I'm outside of, of some of the cities, the, the most people haven't really been exposed to, to that many different styles of cider. Yeah, most people think cider is just sweet and uh, very like candy. But um, I really like Spain, Asturias. A lot of what Jim brings in is uh, fantastic. Some of the best ciders I've ever had. So I always try to get people to experiment with, uh, you know, experience the Spanish side. Yeah, Ron actually brings in some bulk. A uh, thousand couple. When I bring in a when I bring in a container, sometimes he has as many as two thousand liter totes in it for himself and his own use in the cidery. Uh, he puts some on tap, and Ron, you correct me, but I think you probably do some blends with some of your own ferments. Is that right? Yep, it's all blends, and it's kind of like what we did with the chai and dry. We did a collaboration can. Um, oh, I love so that Spanish stuff. Seed, I love that. Uh, glad to hear it was a home. <laughs> It was a home run at uh, Portland Cider Summit the other day. Just absolutely a home run. And we're trying to work on uh, some, some more in the line. So that'll be exciting. Yeah. Just to speak to that, I really enjoy working with Ron. Um, uh, it, you know, I've known him, originally know Ron from doing Franklin County Cider Days. And he was volunteer, enthusiastically doing log pours for people to taste my cider. So uh, we've had a conversation for quite some time. And when I decided to start doing some blending myself in Massachusetts at my locale, and I knew that he had experience blending my cider. So I invited him to work with me on this collaboration and it's worked out really well. Jim, what, what was it about Spain that, that captivated you? You know, you, you were an architect and then next yeah. thing you know, you're importing cider. Yeah. Well, you don't really want to know the whole story because it would take too long. But the short of it is I have been I fell in love, love and spent with Spain in 1974 on study abroad when I was a college student. So much so that I've gone back many times in many different roles, uh, working, teaching and uh, my my most continuous gig there. Uh, a summer program for architecture students that I ran it in the north in the cider region. So I have, you know, going back to 1982, uh, that was this, that's my cider. And being an American, I never had any cider, hard cider before then, because there wasn't any around except this stupid shit we did in our dormitories under the bed, you know, and didn't work out very well. So, um, so when um, I saw cider coming on the scene in the U.S., you know, 10, 11 years ago, uh, I was very disappointed that there was nothing very dry and there was nothing malolactic and et cetera. And um, uh, in looking around for sources in the country, I ended up becoming the importer. That's a great, great origin story. And Ron, why don't you tell us more about Jim and Ciders of Spain? Because um you, you did bring that chai and dry last year to Cider Feast. Yeah, it was a blend that we did. Uh, we actually found this fantastic tea company in Massachusetts, uh, the Tea Guys. And he made like a proprietary blend of chai. And we worked with some uh, local apple juice and the cedra. And we put it all together in a can. And I think it came out like magic. And I think 
you know, the future ones we're very excited for. Yeah, a little um, a little bit more backstory on that particular tea, because we're going to do more tea blends, right, Ron? Um, yep. And that is, um, we started with that one because it wasn't just like me looking for what like more I could do to fuck up Spanish cider to make Americans like it. <laughs> so, uh, pardon me. I don't know if you're, I don't know what your, what's your, uh, what's your, uh, language standards are here. <laughs> Apologize. But, um, uh, but you know, for 10 years, I've been going and doing sales calls and much of that time before I started canning going around with bottles. So I'd come home at the end of the day with, you know, partial bottles of Cidre Natural and going into the kitchen to cook, and there was always like a, a, a half full pot of tea that had been sitting there for the day because my wife was at home. And I would just uh, make this refreshing blend on ice of black tea and cider, and it needed a little something else. It needed a little sweetener, and it needed something else. So I was using Angostura bitters, and that became like, that's a thing for me. And so what we're doing with the chai and dry is kind of like trying to get back to that, which I think Ron tried it out. I gave him the recipe, he tried it out before we had uh, the tea guys uh, on board. And then when the tea guys came on board, you know, it's like, what do we do for the Angostura bitters? Do we go buy a bunch? And, and our brilliant uh, partner, um, uh, Mr. Rich, um, uh, said, no, let's try this chai. And it worked. Oh, that's a great little story. And Peter, so, uh, Tell me more about your week. I saw that, that last month you got in 2,000 pounds of glass. I did, and uh, it's still sitting there. We've got to start bottling, like, soon. It's like uh, uh, a lot of things are, are just getting crazy. Like, today we're expecting, finally, uh, brand-new $7,000 mowers coming. Uh, as, as soon as we're done here, hopefully the truck will arrive. Um, I also started making ice cider again this past winter. And I had a lot of leftover cryoconcentrated juice that wasn't high enough bricks for ice cider, uh, but much higher than you would get out of a fresh pressing. So I added that back to the tanks of already fermenting cider. And it's like, oh, well, we just reset the clock to zero again because we now we got to ferment this. Uh, we're about ready to go with that. Um, the hope I was hoping to start this coming weekend. But uh, the 150 trees are coming in this weekend, so I got to dig 150 holes. Um, so yeah, things things are a little busy right now. What's the biggest thing you worry about, Peter, when you're when you're planting and and growing? Since we're talking about growing. Oh, um, each believe it or not, not all apples grow the same. Uh, you can't treat them all the same. Besides the fact that. Some bloom later than others, or some get harvested earlier than others, which is always a bit of a, a hassle about you know when when you pick them because we have no cold storage, so you have to wait to exact ripeness, basically when they just start to fall. Um, some are more disease susceptible than others. Um, there's a disease called fire blight, which is really nasty. Um, I used to have a hundred Medal Dior, which is a little French cider apple, which is just loaded with tannins. Uh, but they're so susceptible, I finally had to pull them out. Um, what I'm trying to do is just uh, use the apples I grow myself, try to get you know in touch with this region, with this terroir. Um, also, uh, and this, uh, Ron can answer this better, uh, the British Peter Mitchell is going to be coming to Cornell in Geneva, New York, to teach a course coming up this summer, isn't he? Like in July, and I think there's still room there, isn't it? I think there is definitely... 
some spaces in the classes. He teaches on, on both coasts, so it's not just uh, Cornell. I would uh, say uh, that uh, most of the granddaddies around here, like, you know, West County, Farnhamville, um, have all gone through Peter Mitchell's course out there, and uh, it's well worth it. I want to comment on that. I really do. And I don't want to be a pill, but these things need to be out there. So I took Peter Mitchell's course, too, after I started Ciders of Spain. And I, at that particular point, I wasn't planning on making cider, but I wanted to see what the new cider makers were learning how to do. And Peter Mitchell, of course, the other Peter Mitchell, not knowing anything about me, uh, basically said that Spanish cider, Spanish cider isn't any good. And <laughs> yeah, and I'm sitting Whoa. there, I called him on it. And uh, he said, well, at any rate, you can only drink it over there. So don't try to make it over here. And, you know, that's my business. I bring it in. And he's just in my business, you know, just offhand, quite frankly, without any basis for for talking. So he teaches people how to never make anything like Spanish cider. Just keep that in mind. And uh, very true. And, and, and I know a lot of the people because I went to a class really early on. I know a lot of the people who are now running cideries and stuff like that. And congratulations to them for getting started, having these kind of this kind of training wheel lesson on how to make a limited cider with no risk whatsoever, uh, because the goal is all, you know, maximum commercial production. That's quite frankly what that's about and probably very realistic. But my congratulations to the many who are now trying wild yeast ferments. Some are actively trying to make Spanish style ciders, which I totally endorsed. I think that's great. And, and and it was part of our goal to introduce Spanish cider was not just to be the only one selling Spanish cider, but to introduce the style. So um, uh, so go into those go into that course with an open mind. If you are correct, James, that you know he is a Brit and he's going to teach you British cider making techniques, and he's going to want to say, okay, it's got to be dry and loaded with a lot of tannins, and yes, we want a depth to it but it's going to fit within that definition of, of his cider. But he doesn't say it that way. He says it's cider generic and that anything else is. And, and he also, by the way, when he's dealing with uh, organoleptic analysis, says that cider can't possibly have umami. Well, of course, if you freeze out the malolactic in your process, you're not going to have umami. And my view at the time, it continues to be like, who said cider shouldn't remind you of sausage? <laughs> <laughs> William, all right. Now back to Ron. I'm going to talk about what you guys are doing today because I like to hear about the work that's involved. So, Ron, you said you were busy uh, bottling. Yeah, we bottled 1,000 liters over the last couple of days. We did these nice 500-milliliter uh, cork and cage bottles. It's like a dry, sparkling cider. Yeah, why, why did you decide on that? You have a unique little packaging. Why did you decide on that at Spoken Spy? Oh, this is a a project for someone. It's not oh, directly yeah. a Spoken Spy cider. So yeah, but so it's under the direction of the organic grower. But but still, with with the differences, you know, we talk so much in beer about cans, and people don't really talk about bottles too much anymore. Um, our, let's talk about bottles and and cider because. You know, obviously there's different sizes and. Yeah, I think, 
you know, most of the great ciders are in bottles, but I think most of the ciders in America are in cans. So, ditto. But I have nothing against cans. Um, I can a little. I bottle a little, but um, mostly I keg. Uh, okay, I, kegs are wonderful. Um, if you can get a restaurant to uh, give you a tap, because that first pour is going to be exactly like the last pour. Um, I, I like to put the cider in a, in a 750 um, because my price point is usually less than most of the wines on the wine list at a restaurant. And hey, you could put this bottle on the table just as well. Yeah, so I'll speak for cans. <laughs> and that's ironic because, you know, this this whole thing is evolving. When I started out, you know, and it's, of course, it's really important with a traditional cider to have the experience of the long pour from the traditional 700 milliliter green bottle. And I still offer all my bottles, but like 80% of my sales right now are cans. And if I weren't in cans, there'd be no more Spanish cider from Ciders of Spain in America because I wouldn't be able to survive. Um, that's dictated by the buyer and the stores. And when you go into the stores these days, if you're me looking to make a sale, you will observe that the shelf spacing from shelf to shelf vertically is can height. And the only space, except with some exceptions, because they don't put ciders in the wine section, is the very top row, which is, of course, above eye level. So, um, so I said I would never do it. I'm doing it now. There's other things I said I would never do that experience is teaching me to be more flexible. And also, you know, modest success over time, like the like having demonstrated that I am serious about traditional Spanish cider, and that's what I represent, has given me the credibility to try new things, not just in terms of packaging, but in terms of styles and blending. So I, I think it's all, you know, the canning thing, there's no reason for it to to be seen as uh, a, a lesser form. And uh, there is some issue with the life of the cider in a can because of the deterioration of the liner. Uh, we just have to be careful about that. And I won't go into it, but I have my ways of making sure that what I put out there is really fresh. Jim, how, tell us about when you went out to, to Portland, Oregon, and conquering the Pacific Northwest market. <laughs> I wish I could say conquering, you know. I'm uh I'm uh I'm back here now after COVID because I'm trying to retake a little ground. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I had a, a very great director of sales who was taking care of the East Coast and he was doing so well in Massachusetts, New York, Rhode Island, Connecticut, he was doing so well that I was like superfluous and it was kind of embarrassing to even be going out and doing sales. So I left partly because we'd been for a couple, three years already on the West Coast and I'd never, I'd never been advocating for it out, out here. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm out here now, so out here. And um, um, so we moved out for four years um, to kind of live and be part of the community and um, so we've established, uh, you know, some good, solid, consistent uh, uh, customers out here, including a really large chain, which I'm working on kind of revisiting and, and re-energizing out here in California called Beverages and More, which has like 140 stores in, uh, in California. Um, and to, to, on the other hand, doing a... Uh, doing a tasting event at Crooked City Cider, which is a small, you know, uh, owner-run um, cider house uh, in, uh, in Oakland. 
but yeah, it's really great out here. It's a great cider community in terms of making in the, in the Pacific Northwest. A fair amount of making, but not as intense, uh, not as many people in California, but good makers in California. And so I really enjoy the opportunity. But I'm back in the Northeast now because I really love my uh, uh, New England cider uh, and New England cider makers. And that's where I want to be when I start making some demonstration batches of, of cider, which is really, you know, the time that we have left and the rate of development of the orchard, you know, is, is, it's going to be a very modest operation. So that's great. Hey, Peter, um, I know in, in beer, there's a lot of collaborations, you know, between brewers and, you know, they're standing around and mo most of it's done in advance. They, they, they work on the recipe and, and order the malts and everything. And then they, then they have great photo ops not knocking collabs because they're awesome. But I noticed that over the winter you were up at uh, our friends at Farnham Hill and you guys were mucking around in, in the orchards. It, is, is that a collaboration or what, you know, oh, just well, tell well, me about. What the heck was I doing up there? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, besides taking pictures of owls in the snow. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, he's got some great varieties up there. He's got uh, Ashton bitter and Ellis bitter up there. Um, I have tried them. Uh, we got about a hundred sticks total and we grafted them onto some Macintosh and Cortland trees here. Most of them have taken. Um, so that's going to yield fruit in about three years. So we're actually switching over trees from Macintosh and Cortland to Ellis bitter and Ashton bitter. Uh, got some good tannins in those and uh, higher bricks, higher sugar content than you would normally get out of a Cortland and Empire. Plus, um, UNH, University of New Hampshire, was running a, a grafting course for the purposes of developing trap trees. Okay, this is, oh, that's kind of geeky grower talk. Um, you make sort of sacrificial lambs out of a few of your trees on the edge of your orchard with varieties that you know the bugs really like. And you say, okay, all bugs over here. And then all you have to do is spray those few trees instead of your whole orchard. Uh, saves a lot of money yes. and time. Yeah, my Spanish my Spanish uh, 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 growers uh, who produce the the fruit for my cider makers were telling me about that as well. So yeah, glad to hear you reiterate it. It it it, it works well. Farm has been doing that for like oh ten twelve years now, and I've just started it. Of course, it's freshly grafted so it's going to take three years to get them to really start flowering uh but yeah those will be the the goat trees <laughs> yeah right yeah I, I don't think i realized just just how risky what you're doing is oh well, growing it's uh growing anything is las vegas in the dirt you know sometimes you have a really great crop sometimes you don't oh yeah and then um jim you don't have anything negative to say about the grafting course then <laughs> oh, I haven't taken it, but I'm 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 going to learn grafting locally. We've got some great besides Peter Mitchell, who's a friend who's always available to help me out and advise me, and I draw on him. We have Matt Kaminsky, who is kind of I think the the man, um, and um, so yeah, he's a grafting maniac. He sure is. Yeah, and he teaches a grafting course and many other. Uh, 
tree care courses. So once I'm settled, we've only been there a year and we've been like kind of scrambling, buying, finding properties and working them and stuff. But once I get settled, I'll take all of Matt's courses for sure. You should check out Matt online. It's gnarly Pippins. Yeah. And all, all three of you, when you, you mentioned Franklin County and Franklin County Cider Days and that area, um, what it, what's what what about it? Why, why is that the the center of so much of Northeast cider, American cider? I know it inspired uh, Tom Oliver to create a a Bristol cider summit in England. Well, this historically this has been uh, Franklin County has been the epicenter of apple growing in Massachusetts. I mean, yeah, we can also go all the way back that uh, you know Johnny Appleseed was born in Lemonster, Mass. Um, but even in, uh, oh, who was it? it? was Sarah down at the mobile station. Her family has been here forever <laughs> and I love that. gave me uh, a cut, a, a copy of a newspaper clipping. And I think it was in 1902 or something, some insane amount of cider came out of these hills, like over a million gallons. And you got to remember, these are steep hills and they're hauling this stuff up and down the slopes with oxen and horses. Yeah, so there was a whole bunch of ciders. There's lovely abandoned orchards deep in the woods here. Um, and there's just a, a beautiful heritage for apples. I went foraging with Peter last year. And our That's right. It was amazing. And we were, we were identifying, you know, by taste, identifying these random varieties that the ones that we liked and tagging the trees. And Peter was GPS locating them with... Uh, intentions we didn't fulfill last year but maybe this year peter huh we'll go pull pick some of those and and maybe i'll take some cuttings now that i have some rootstock in the ground oh yeah i think it's time we should head on out there with gordon and uh but we'll bring some backpacks yeah. and stack up stock up on yeah. some apples yeah yeah because i gotta i gotta make some cider this year i you know i mean yeah i got a lot to learn and little time left <laughs> I sometimes, you know, go, what the hell am I doing planting an orchard of trees that are going to take seven to 10 years to mature in my life, in my, you know, at my age. And I realize, oh, no, the, those trees are going to keep me alive. <laughs> You're right, Jim. Hey, we should probably give a shout out to some other locals out here like uh, like Bear yeah. Swamp uh, uh, Cidery and West County. You know, and the new kids, what Berkshire Cider Project, they're all doing wonderful things out there. You know, I heard, talking about Pacific Northwest, I heard from a farmer I bought lamb from a few months ago that somebody came into her shop who just bought 90 acres uh, up near, up in Leiden that had just, was moving from the Pacific Northwest to start a big orchard up here in Franklin really? County. Really? Wow. I have not been able, and I heard about them again, so I think it's true, but I haven't been able to locate it. I'm sure, I'm sure curious, and I'm sure curious why, if it's true, somebody is moving from the Pacific Northwest, which we know is great apple growing country, why they want to move to New England. I have my theories, but they're, you know, um, idle theories based on no confirmation this is actually happening. <laughs> Yeah. Well, if it were, would it be climate change? Is, is it the price of land? It's not the price of land. I, it's sharing the price of land. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to guess that, as you said, since growing an orchard is a long-term investment, that it's likely to be a climate change consideration. If you're going to start now, 
with the with the with the droughts that they've been having here and the smoke. And I, you know, one of the things I and I'm not trying to diss the Pacific Northwest. Believe me, I'm here now more or less, and I was there, and I'm going back in September. Um, uh, and I, and there's some great cider makers that have mentored me uh, in terms of uh, I haven't been making yet, but in terms of flavor profiles that work here, in terms of working with my producers to get them. Uh, but um, you know, we lived through a really bad smoke season. Uh, where you know whatever the index scale was at 650 uh you know something parts per million whereas uh, 450 is the limit of human safety and and so they do talk about uh uh smoke taint in the wine industry in 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 in, in, in northern california and the pacific northwest and a little murmuring about it with regard to apples i think you hear less about it with apples when you're here because there's so much less uh you know there's so much more wine being produced in cider that it's a more aware people are more aware of it but um i hope that's not i mean i hope i hope we work through this i hate to think that you know i hope i hate to think that we're going to lose an important cider making region yeah well you find out who that is james and uh you tell them to plant some yeah. uh, spanish cider fruit <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna get on, I'm gonna get on it. You know, I've been tied up with the new property, but I'm gonna go around and just start like driving around Leiden and see what's going on. Oh yeah. Hey, listen, this has been a great start and intro to our show. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Greetings from Cheeselandia the ultimate community of cheese lovers. Cheeselandia is your golden pathway to the world of Wisconsin artisanal cheese, where you can immerse yourself in a vibrant society of cheese, in real life and online. Join this community of fellow travelers from all 50 states on the Cheeseway of life and enjoy member-only events, attend the School of Cheese, pursue cheese quests, and apply to host your own Cheeselandia house party. Visit wisconsincheese.com slash Cheeselandia to join. 
Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Become a member and join us at heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking about cider. It's the summer of cider. It's June, and and uh, this is the time to talk about cider. So uh, we got Jim from James Asbel from Ciders of Spain, Peter Mitchell from Headwater Cider, and Ron Sansone from Spoken Spy Cider Work. So, so Ron, um, let's let's get back to you because you are the most interesting guy in the room. But sometimes you're the quietest guy on the radio. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. So, um, what do you want to know? Well, like more, more, like let's talk about one. Weren't you making a pineapple cider? Oh yeah, I do tons of that. It's called Tapash Mode. It's a uh, wild fermented pineapple with uh, some spices like cinnamon and allspice and green cardamom and black pepper. Um, it's pretty interesting and it's pretty popular. So that was one of the first ciders we made. And uh, it's still one of our most popular. And then wh where do you get your recipes? Uh, I just make them up. Do you? I mean, everything's been done before. So, I mean, you know, you search, you find things you like and pick a direction and, you know, use uh, what you've learned in school to, to make your version of uh, whatever you can. Yeah. It's, it's true. It's true, man, that in this, you know, evolving, quickly evolving, uh, uh, community and category you think of something you think ah i thought of this and you did and then before you even release yours somebody else has released something very similar to that you know so like with the chai and dry that ron did uh, ron and i did together there's i think at least a couple of others out there one of them that i, I know concretely is called shider that's made by um shilling cider company shilling. cider company in seattle you know so you know uh it's it's actually it's actually there's so many of us out there. It's hard to actually be the first at anything because you're never alone. Exactly, we're all working on it together. Yes, it is just like cathedrals. I say, you know, you go around, you look at the consistency of cathedrals through any era, and it's because it was a community project. You know, I mean, nobody was telling anybody else what to do with their cathedral, but they had similar goals, similar spiritual goals. They were speaking in the language of the time and so forth and so on. And I, I'll, I'll tell you something that I, I uh, while I admire all periods of architecture, sometimes I'm kind of impatient with contemporary architecture where the goal seems to be do something as unrecognizable to anything else. You know, it's just like, look at me, look at me, architecture. And, uh, you know, Architecture really wants to be live in me, worship, worship, worship in me, and cider wants to be drink me. You know, it doesn't want to be, you know, you know, be weirded out by me. <laughs> so. If you have enough believers, you can build anything. Yeah. <laughs> and and maybe if there are enough people that work with wood and perhaps have built ships, would that have influenced the cathedrals? Well, they're stone, you know, so. You know, the, the cathedrals are all stone. Actually, the, during the time of the cathedrals, the uh, masonry trade was so absorbed, used up, sucked into making cathedrals that most of the other, that's why there's so much, that then the parish churches are all brick, you know, because there were, you know, no masons <laughs> left, no stone masons left. You raise a good point, James. You know, as you say, with the cathedrals, they took... Uh you know, centuries to build. So obviously the 
original planners and builders were long dead before it was finished. Um, and yet you also say, you know, you note the uh, the novelty of uh, modern or contemporary architecture. And I, I think you can see both of those reflected in CIDR today. You know, there are some groups which are carrying on various traditions, world traditions, absolutely. and then some are trying stuff new. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the, the correspondence between all aspects of culture, you know, music, art, culinary, beverage, architecture, you know, they have similar uh, structures, underlying cultural structures that you can see strong parallels in. And sometimes it's actually very helpful to use one as a metaphor for the other, you know. Well, cool. I always wanted to be an artist. <laughs> well, since you're you talking are, about you cultural, all right, listen, cultural backgrounds. Let's let's pin down two regions. First, let's talk about New England, and Peter, Ron, and James. New England and cider. Why, and what was that culture about? Give me the one hundred and one. Well, do you want to go with the the impotability of of? Okay, so it's it's seventeen forty, and you're sitting in Boston or one of the other farm towns and your 20 foot hand dug well is 10 feet away from your 10 foot hand dug privy. And it gets to be June and you're going like, yeah, I ain't drinking that water. Um, <laughs> fermentation, fermentation kills bacteria. And if you're doing a wild ferment, you're probably going to have a very low alcohol product. So if you could do all this cider, you know, like barrels and barrels of it, um, it was something safe to drink. Um, during those those low flow summer months when you didn't want when water was just awful, and so they drank it in the morning because they needed water, and they drank it all day long, and kids drank it, hundreds of gallons. But that's the whole culture for 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 New England. Why why did New England become? Was it was it because of the era it was settled? Yeah. Why early, why is New England this like this hotbed of of American cider? Earliest. At the earliest, we've just had more time, like a lot more time. When you look at how long there was settlement in New England before you started to have, you know, uh, England, uh, European settlement, of course, I mean, uh, before you started to have, and let's just be frank, conquest uh, moving moving westward. And uh, related to that, which is very important to Ron and me and somewhat to, um, to Peter, is the Connecticut River Valley, which is where we're both situated. You know that was the first fertile valley exploited in uh, the in in North in North America by uh, by European settlers um, uh, before the Hudson Valley, and I'll just compare it with my time out here. I mean, in Oregon, the Willamette Valley, which flows, you know, from south in the mountains up through Portland and empties into Columbia, is a huge fruit basket. Um, but uh, the Connecticut River is the earliest one and um, continues. So it has this, not just apples, but the Connecticut River has that, uh, and I'm finding, and we're in the valley, um, has this tremendous culture of small farms um, and farming families that have been there for generations. And, um, you know, so it's, 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 it's the whole, it's the whole, it's the whole agricultural culture. And, um, is so much much older, and and you know, we there's the you know, Connecticut River Valley down near where James is, and moving all the way down through to where Ron is. That's that's also Connecticut River is 
is beautiful, beautiful farmland, some of the best in the country. If you move up closer to the hills, you start getting into rocks. And in, so you can't really plow it, but you could dig an occasional hole and plant a tree. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, yeah. I, I just got through digging my, even though I'm like right on the edge of the Connecticut River Valley. And I mean, I can literally see the transition from the west side of my site to the east toward the, toward the valley, like literally in terms of the amount of rocks. And um, while I'm digging, I'm humming Roots Rock Reggae to myself because <laughs> that's what's in my holes, man. It's hard work. Wow. Hey, Ron, what, what about uh, in Connecticut? I know, um, you know, you're involved with more than just your own cidery in Connecticut. What about the history of cider there? Uh, there are a few cideries that are doing pretty well now. I think cider is getting more popular in Connecticut. I'm started, starting to help. Um, I started the uh, Connecticut Cider Association five years ago. Nice. We're just trying to support um, all the cideries in Connecticut. And I'm working with probably like four or five Connecticut startups that are trying to launch in the next year or so. And some of these are like those classic, uh, you know, families like they were talking about there, going back, you know, five, ten generations who are just now getting into the hard cider side of the business. So. Hey, what about Clyde's? What can you tell us about Clyde's? Oh, Clyde's is fantastic. <laughs> it's a very interesting um, steam-powered. It's like a engineering site it's like a historic engineering location steam-powered cider um i think they bring in the apples i don't think they grow apples at all i'm not even sure if they use connecticut apples um but uh, they do very interesting ciders that they sell in like gallon milk jugs so it's yeah. a, ste a steam-powered cidery in connecticut yeah and yeah. and it has a claim to fame that it was one of the only cideries in america that managed to uh, continue to operate through uh, prohibition because the uh, matriarch of the operation at that time had some influence with uh, state politicians and managed to get their cider recognized as patent medicine. <laughs> so they were making cider, hard cider as patent medicine throughout the, uh, throughout prohibition. Since 1881. And that's a, that's a good point you bring up, James, that we really should recognize that cider was pretty much the bad boy at Prohibition. Uh, I mean, people were just chopping down their cider orchards because uh, it's people were making a lot of it. And especially in New England, there's a thing called New England style cider, which is where you're going to add extra sugar and raisins and jack up that alcohol. And when Prohibition was repealed, um, and they were rewriting the laws. Cider was not invited to the table. It was pretty much just a, you know, a winemaker, a brewer, and uh, a hard liquor person. So that, is that why in some of the states, yeah, like the, I know in New York, it wasn't really defined what cider was. Yeah, and uh, well, thank goodness for, uh, oh, who's the senator? Um, oh, gosh. He brought back the farm uh, cidery license to New York, and it's done wonders for New York cideries. Um, Schumer. Chuck Schumer. Schumer. Yeah. Schumer. Uh, I'm, I've been poking my reps for years saying we, I want this from Massachusetts. Uh, hasn't yeah. gone anywhere yet, but you know, we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, um, 
because I work in a lot of different states, because I'm an importer and I sell through distributors, I see the regimen in all these different states. And it's all over the map. There's no consistency. Some states have begun to recognize. So for me, there's another level because Peter's talking about the legal production and sale of cider. Uh, but then uh, at the federal level, but then I go in all these states and I have to deal with, uh, you know, state regulatory agencies and, and they're all over the map. Some have followed the federal thing and begun to recognize cider. Ever, only since I've been doing it. So before I, I, I was, you know, I had to be a wine and you could uh, contact a state that you have a new distributor in that you're about to go into. And you could be dealing with uh, uh, a, uh, a functionary in, in the, you know, uh, beverage commission that actually didn't know what to call cider and, and, and they'd have to kind of like pull a rabbit out of the hat, a nice way to say it, <laughs> pull a rabbit out of the hat with a definition for you so that you can complete your licensing application. Even in New York, in some, in some of the retail stores, I know there, there's certain ciders, I think there, there was and may still be, uh, ciders can be sold based on the ABV. Um, Yes. Not sure, 100%. That's yeah. exactly right. And I have to give a tip of the hat to Michelle McGrath and the uh, American Cider Association for here, here. Uh, being able to flex the muscle and get a rewrite of the federal um, definition of cider. So what is it now? What's the federal definition of cider? Uh, it's, uh, it's, seven, it's 7%, isn't it? For ABV? Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you know I'm not up to date. It was seven and a half percent when I started out. And uh, fortunately, if it has been lowered to seven, it won't affect me because I've got nothing on that cusp. But uh, I don't know for sure. Um, another issue with regard to definition is that sparkling cider is a um, above a certain pressure. Uh, they're, they're, they're sparkling wines and they get super taxed just like champagnes do. Uh, so if people are producing that, they got to know, and I'm sure most of them do know, that they're going to get taxed at a higher level, which is one of the things that makes those more expensive. And it's the same for me bringing it over. If I bring something in over, uh, I, don't, I don't keep track of the pressure because mine are so far, my, my sparkling ones are so far over the limit that I don't know what the bottom is. I just pay it, you know. <laughs> Yeah, here in Connecticut, the uh, grocery stores don't even sell cider, so we're we'd only be able to sell in um, liquor stores. Wow. Yeah, I my stuff always comes in above seven, so I'm just like, yep, yeah, we'll pay the tax. That's fine. I <laughs> I'm happy with eight percent. That's good. Yeah. Seven eight. Yeah, and Spanish ciders, traditional Spanish ciders, are typically six to seven percent. So we're for our basic product in the safe zone and everything that I do except for uh, my uh, brute ciders, my sparkling ciders are below, but my sparkling ciders are, you know, taxed, highly taxed. Yeah. Hey Jim, let, let's just go back to Spain for a minute. Uh, Astorius, tell us about a couple of your producers or yeah. products. Yeah, and sure. There, and there's some weird stuff, like you, you, there's special methods yeah, uh, for making these ciders. Right. So the 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 first thing to say is that for two thousand years, going back, actually recorded in some Greek traders' uh, logs, uh, they've been making cider continuously in Asturias. So I'm sure people were making as soon as as soon as human met apple, there was probably cider. 
Uh, so uh, we're really talking about probably a prehistoric beverage. But in terms of continuity, the longest continuity currently is, is from Spain. So the traditional sidra, cider, that they make is a way that is consistent across the region, spills over into the Basque region, and there's a lot of debate. I know where I stand on it, who's really, you know, the origin point, and a little bit in Cantabria and Galicia, also on the northern coast, but primarily, you know, intense production of the same method, wild yeast fermented, single fermentation, matured over the, over the winter, don't do anything to it, Dealing with the different profiles of the different wild yeasts is experiential. It's not control. It's not Peter Mitchell. It's not treating stuff uh, with chemicals in your laboratory and inoculating them with with uh, with uh, uh, cultured uh, yeast. You just basically let it go, and then you do what you have to do to come out with it. So, but they make very large volumes, and they have a lot to blend. So, they're not. They're they're about they're about blending to get the flavor profiles balanced across their various uh, batches, and you know they can they can harvest the same apples from the same orchards, bring that in, press it, and go into three different very large vats, and in spite of all that uh, sameness, the three batches will be different. So they know that they've known that for a very long time. The idea of consistency is laughable. So that's defined Spanish traditional Spanish cider, and until when I first started importing 10 years ago, I was looking for the best people making the best, but also I wanted to make sure that I was working with people who were interested in developing new cider styles because I need to survive in a market where not everybody's gonna drink a traditional Spanish cedra. And they've done very well by me. So Francisco Ordonez, who's the head cider maker at Viuda de Angelón, He's a guy who's now recognized as the best cider maker in Spain. Um, he um, uh, is from a fourth generation cider making family, uh, but he went and studied enology at the University of Valencia and he worked, you know, he apprenticed and journeymen in the winemaking industry before he came back. And so he has these technical skills. So he's making one of my uh, brute, uh, brute ciders and I won't go into detail about what the method is. We could do that another time. Um, and he's also making, using second fermentation, uh, Metho Charmat, uh, to make, uh, a Perry. Uh, he's the only one making Perry. Long story about why they don't make Perry over there, but he does. And so I have the only Perry made in Spain in my portfolio too. And, um, and then, uh, doing blends. So we have one blend, which is the Metho Charmat cider, but it's, uh, uh, back sweetened with a little bit of honey from the hives in his orchard. Uh, and he's always inventing. He's got an incredible product called 1947 that's used with intensive application of winemaking skills. Love to talk about that sometime. Uh, that I would say is one of the finest accomplishments in cider making in the world right now. I mean, it's just an extraordinarily unique, rich product. And then... Uh, 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 Cedro Riestra, Raul Riestra, the cider maker there. Um, the first time I went to um, seal my deal with him on his traditional ciders, he had just made his first batch of uh, true champagne method second fermentation Cedra Brut with a second fermentation sponsored with an inoculation of a, 
of a Chardonnay yeast. So it's got some wine character. It's very dry, very smoky, extraordinary. So, and increasingly there are other people over there that, you know, Spanish cider makers are, have been doing the same thing forever, but they also are saturating their home regions. They, there's not a lot of growth left there. Everybody drinks it. And they're actually losing some ground because in the modern world, kids can drink cocktails just as well. And so um, they, ha they, they have to look to the world market. And, and, and so they are um, experimenting and accomplishing a lot with new styles. And I'm like really happy to kind of like also be present at the creation and the turning point from the one style of cider that I understood to be Spanish cider uh, uh, in previous years. And when I started this, and the new things that are coming out, um, it's impressive. How did they react to your chai and dry? Did you taste anyone to, in Spain? Yeah, I, I tasted Raul Riestra and his brother Ruben, whose cider that we use in it. The chai and dry is two-thirds what I can here is good, clean funk, which is essentially cedra natural riestra, traditional cedra, uh, and one-third uh, the tea, the unsweetened tea, and a couple of other uh, tricks up our sleeve. And, uh, you know, I couldn't go, I released it at the beginning of COVID. It didn't get a lot of play, obviously, because uh, there people weren't, reps weren't able to go and, and, and offer it at stores. So I'm out here doing that now, but um, I didn't get to, I didn't get to take any to uh, Ruben and Rao until a few weeks ago. I went over there and um, they really dig it. I have, I'll send you, I'll share you a photograph of them tasting it, but also, the bottom line. If you send it today, that could be the show photos. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I have it. I should do that. So, but I, but, uh, but I have to say, and I want to be frank about this. You know, these are great people, and they have standards, but they want to sell too. So basically, you know, they're very supportive of anything I do over here. They've never been. They never tied my hands, and and um, they're my authority. I have people that come to my events and go, "You shouldn't do this with Spanish cider." And I can just say back to them, doesn't bother my cider, my Spanish cider makers. Why should it bother you? You know, um, and uh, and especially Raul, I would say, you know, Raul, whatever it takes, you know, as long as I'm moving cider out of his cidery, he's for it. <laughs> do, do you think that Americans want the long pour and like the real Astorius traditional experience? Sure they do. I mean, you see it a lot. You know, it's become a meme. People want to do it. Uh, I love doing it because when I'm in an event where there's like 70 other producers there, or there maybe there's 30 other producers with 70 to 100 other ciders. When I raise my hand up to do that long pour, people see it from across the way and they want to know what's going on. So it's clearly, you know, it's a very attractive thing. And I'm going to put this out there now. Stop using those porones for cider. That's, you know, that that handled that handled glassware thing with the spout, that is not for cider. That's a Basque thing. They trapped you because you were a tourist and they thought <laughs> they could get you to drink cider. But you don't drink it that way. Even they don't drink it that way. They either drink it this marvelous high pressure shot right out of the keg into your into your glass, or a long a shorter, a shorter, less showy version of a long pour, which frankly is not long enough for me to imagine it accomplishes anything but that's just another indication that the historians know what they're doing 
So, but the real long pour, ha you know, it's attractive. It excites people, but it also affects the cider. So if you're going to pour from a bottle, you have to do that to get the right quality in your glass. I won't go into detail why, but we could do that another time. Um, and um, so, I, you know, I, my, my bottles, uh, my 700 milliliter bottles all come with uh, training wheels for doing that and instructions on the label. And so that's a cool thing. And that's really knowing the tradition. But, you know, we also want people to find it, our cider however we can. And right now, the cans are outselling everything else. Although the bottles that are selling the best of my bottle product are the traditionals uh, that you pour that way. Ah, that's great. Hey, Ron, um, we're going to wrap up soon. But, you know, you, you worked with Jim. You, you reintroduced us last year. Um, do you want to say anything else about what he's doing? I mean, I love Spanish cider, and I, I think Jim's bringing over some of the best. And if you have a chance to go to Astorius, um, it's like a whole whole other world over there. It's like just cider on every corner. It's it's amazing. It's like here in America, we have Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks over there. It's like cider <laughs> just about every corner. And I'd much prefer you know cider on every corner than that's a great one, Ron. There's a, there's a spot I can't remember where I'm, might be Fall River has a Dunkin' Donuts on three or four corners in one neighborhood. <laughs> it's crazy, but I'm also Peter. I've I've oh, actually fermented some of his apples. So and you're still standing. Yeah, it works. <laughs> hey, so Ron, nobody in the died. few minutes we got left. You know, cider is you know, there's a difference between simple and easy, but making cider is technically simple. And I think a lot of people can start doing it themselves. Is there some sort of home brewing thing that people can get into? Yeah, actually, Cena is starting to talk about a uh, entry level course, like more on the home brewer introduction to how cider is made. So that will probably be announced soon. Um, of course, I'm, I'm going to go to hell now because I use the term brewing and cider in the same sentence. Sorry. Yeah, cider isn't brewed, but home brewers can make cider. So. There is that. Well, you know, I'm going to run for office and I'm going to put a, a chicken in every pot and it's cider on every corner <laughs> in my cider tree, in, cider right. trees in my town. You got, you got, you got, you got my vote. Are you running? You're going to run in Massachusetts? <laughs> I don't think so, gentlemen. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, and, and let's wrap it. And Peter, for you, um, any last, any last words for us? Yes. You got to go. What are you, what are you going to go back outside and do? I think if anything, I learned from just how hard this business is, whether it's bottling, running a business, making the cider, selling, planting the trees. Well, allegedly that tr that mower is being delivered from Iowa in about 30 minutes. So I got to get the forklift started. Hopefully it will start and uh, get out there and unload the truck. Um, the June drop of apples has already started. Um, but other than that, it's looking like a good crop this year. Uh, last year was a wet year, so we had a lot of juice, but not a lot of sugar in it. Things are looking pretty darn good this year, knock wood. Um, yeah. Hopefully going to bottle the uh, ice cider early next spring, and that's about it. Just keep keep on growing, keep on grafting, planting new trees. Um, yeah, it's, it's always something going on. Well, listen, I really appreciate you guys coming on last minute. Um, I'm in the cider vibe. and uh, Okay, go to Cider Feast in Haverhill. Oh yeah, north of Boston, <laughs> but yeah. if you're in Massachusetts, sure. And um, 
that's it, guys. Thanks to uh, Armin and All Alex, right. our crew. Armin Spengen, our engineer. Alex Tran, our producing intern. Uh, thanks so much to Ron, Peter, and James for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. Thank you. Better on. Better on. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.